0: Capital One knows that life does not alert you about your credit card. That's why we created Eno, the Capital One assistant that catches things that might look wrong with your credit card, like over-tipping, duplicate charges, or potential fraud. It then sends an alert to your phone and helps you fix it. Also, use Eno to get virtual card numbers to better protect yourself when you shop online. It's another way that Capital One is watching out for your money when you're not. Capital One, what's in your wallet? See CapitalOne.com for details. CapitalOne.com.
1: Everyone talks about winning games and a winner mentality. Michael Jordan came for your soul. Michael Jordan was already upset when you showed up to the game because he felt, why do you think that you can even compete with me?
0: Hey, now it's Kraken. Welcome to the 126th episode of the Jim Rohn Podcast. More now than ever, I appreciate you working this side hustle into whatever your new routine looks like. Thanks so much. Now, if you're like every other sports degenerate on the planet, you undoubtedly tuned into the first two episodes of The Last Dance, Chicago Bulls Michael Jordan docu-series last Sunday. So I want to play the hot hand and I want to supplement the viewing material. My guest this week for the pod is BJ Armstrong. BJ was there on the floor for the Bulls first three-peat. He's got the hardware to prove it. And after a very decorated NBA career, he moved into the front office as a special assistant to Jerry Krause. He now works as a VP with Wasserman Sports. This guy has first-hand insight from every single angle, and I am pumped to talk to him about it and bring you the conversation. So let's not waste time. Let's get right into this right now. Here is episode 126 with BJ Armstrong. So, BJ, while the entire nation, seemingly the whole world, was watching The Last Dance, you actually lived it. I mean, maybe not The Last Dance, but you've got particular insight and experience having won three rings as part of the initial 3 Pete, and then you came back to work as a special assistant to Jerry Cross when you were done playing. So I've got to ask, what was it like for you to watch the first two episodes last week, and what were your biggest takeaways?
1: Well, you know, Jim, it's always... Uh well, at least for me, anyway, it's always kind of it's a like out of body experience, right? It's a little weird, uh, you know. I, that's probably the best way I can say it is to kind of watch yourself. Either if you're directly involved in something, or you are just, you know, either one or you know, two people removed from the actual story. So, most of these stories I've heard uh, directly or indirectly, and um, but it's great. I, I think it's great from the standpoint of we have this figure like a Michael Jordan who is accomplished so much so accomplished that if anyone needs to share this story I think it's him so I'm really happy that it's done because to be honest with you I think the next generation needs to hear it they need to see it you know you know like, you know I have a 19 year old son and uh, it's really hard for me to tell him how good this guy really is right he never saw Michael Jordan so I think it's really good for you know, the next generation to see him, to try to get a feel for him, but to hear from the man himself. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a great platform, and um, I, I'm I'm happy that it, uh, that he chose to do it because it's so unlike Michael Jordan.
0: It's so funny you say that. That was my very next point, BJ. For instance, if it's weird for you to see, and it's got to be really weird for you to see, it's weird even for me to see or watch because the whole project is so out of character for Mike. He just doesn't do it. He's so private. He always has been. So why do you think he consented to do so now? And then secondarily, what do you make of the way he shows up in those sit-down interviews?
1: Well, you know, Jim, look, you, you were around and you covered, you know, us and we've been knowing each other for quite some time. And Michael just doesn't talk, right? And, uh, you know, he would do his interviews. He was always accessible, but it was always accessible on his terms. You know, I, you know, I'll show a story is when they called me, when the director and, and the people called me to do the interview, I thought it was a joke. Um, because, you know, Michael, first of all, would never do anything like that. And if it was some something that was, of that importance he actually would call himself so uh you know i was a little hesitant and i said look why don't you have michael call me <laughs> and he would call me. so he did call and we talked and we laughed about it and and that just goes to show you the camaraderie that we had as a group here we are 30 35 years later and nothing has come out what happened in that locker room and that was the era of that time right the locker room was your safe haven and um I think he I I think he had to do it for himself because you know, there was so much said about him and so many, you know, people saying this is what he did and this is what he didn't do. I think it was time for him to say, you know what, I want to share and kinda of give you a deep dive into how I really prepared because for him, you know, I don't know this, but he was very aware, like he was very aware of the Jordan character he was very aware of Michael Jordan he was very aware of you know for us who knew him m j and throughout all of these different characters he was just a you know he was he was just a guy he he was one of the guys in the locker room then we had fun and he enjoyed being one of the guys right he's a guy's guy for sure you know he is without question probably the most comfortable being around the guys and doing what we all do right acting silly and playing cards or, you know, making jokes and making fun of one another. So he was very comfortable in that environment. But I think he wanted to give insight on what was his driving force. You know, how could someone live at such extremes um, in this business um, of where, you know, he's achieved so much. He had achieved all of the success individually, but then he had this amazing appetite to do this over and over and over again and i think that's something that only he can explain right no, none of us you know whether you're a teammate or you were observing the game or a fan you say what is what's making this man this hungry to where he has to prove himself every single time he comes out on the floor because it was a very unusual combination that you saw where he was just you know, Jim, he was just something that you really – you just marveled at because not only was he that good in the game, he was just as good or better in practice, and he did it time and time again.
0: See, then, BJ, it seems to me that's the thing, right? Every single day – of his life. It would seem to be, he showed up like that and there was a standard. And not only did he hold himself to that standard, he held everybody around him to that standard, which brings me to one of my favorite topics ever. And I've done this for so long and I've asked every kind of great athlete this question, but this whole notion of nature or nurture. So why was Mike, Mike? Was he wired? Was he hardwired that way? Did he come out like that? Is he a product of his environment? Is that the way he came up? Why was that guy like that?
1: Well, you know, I thought, about, I, I thought about this for, you know, a long time. And, um, you know, I, I, I wish I knew, you know. I, I mean, because it really goes against human It's only human nature to, you know, be up 20 points and to have a letdown, right? What I did come to understand, Jimmy, is that he played the game as if the game was always 0-0. Zero, zero. You know, we had this kind of thing uh, within our team. Um, no matter what the score was, you know, we would check each other and say, hey, what's the score of the game? And every year, it was always funny because the you know the rookie would look up at the uh, scoreboard. <laughs> he would give us the score, and um, and it was always funny because we always played the game as if it was zero zero. Right. And uh, that came about from you know his viewpoint of if I don't score and you don't score, we're always going to be in the game. So as marvelous as wonderful of an offensive player Michael Jordan was, he was that he was a better defensive player. He was an incredible all you know all nba defender right he was he was mvp or he was defensive player of the year he was always a first team all defensive player and he had the mentality of a grinder he was truly a grinder who just happened to be you know in this incredible athletic uh body he was a grinder he was a very sound fundamental basketball player who just had amazing athletic ability that's probably the best way i can put it and i just think he had the right mentality to play the game because, you know, Michael was, you know, he was without question, he was a very versatile athlete, but he was a very physical athlete. And as the game slowed down, especially in the playoffs, he was actually a better player, even though his skill set and outwardly, he was fun to watch, right? He would run and jump and hang in the air and all of those things. But truly, he was what, you know, I think, you know, I don't know if it's an NBA term, but what we term he was a ground athlete he could function and get from A to B quicker than anyone, right? And, uh, you know, we had a nickname for him. You know, there was Michael, there was MJ, and then there was that black cat. That black cat can get from A to B as fast as anyone. And when he got into that mode, I mean, he was just undeniable. And he could do things, and his balance and things that he could do was just beyond explanation. So... Um, he was able to jump into those modes when he needed, and um, he just knew how to access something that the rest of us didn't.
0: So, BJ, was he he playing to win the game, or was he playing to snatch souls? Was it personal, always? Um, Well, I want to be very careful when I answer this, but I, I, I think
1: we're going to see it anyway. You know, yes, everyone talks about winning games and a winner mentality. Michael Jordan came for your soul. Michael Jordan was already upset when you showed up to the game because he felt, Why do you think that you can even compete with me? Now, it took me some time to really grasp that idea. You know, winning a game is winning a game. You know, Michael Jordan never lost a game because he was out of space and time. You know, the 48 minutes wasn't enough time. So, even though he lost the game, he would make sure that he, he, he lost, but you, he, he always wanted you to feel like, if I had one more minute, I would have won that game. And when I picked up on that, it was like something that – it was something different that I realized is that when you compete, what's the first thing you do in the playgrounds when you compete, right? You say run it back. Just because we have 48 minutes, you never, ever wanted to – admit that you were defeated. So if you ever watch his interviews after a loss, it was like he won the game. And, and when I picked up on it, I thought it was really funny because you were like, who is this guy? Like, why does he always have an answer? And he never, ever admitted to defeat. And he just had this attitude and he carried this inner confidence about him. It wasn't cocky. It was just he had a mental understanding of always keeping what I would probably term intelligent pressure on the opponent, right? Even when he lost a game, he was putting pressure on you because he was going to put pressure on you defensively. He's going to put pressure on you offensively, mentally, you know, the warfare that he was doing, the trash talking, it was all calculated. It was all calculated with the idea like, I don't even want to, I don't even want to play against him. That's how he wanted you to think. And uh, I think he touched on it a little bit. He said, I don't even want the other teams to think they can beat me. Like, that's before the game even started. He was already planting the seeds as he plays and meet people and everything, everything was always geared toward him defeating you in some capacity.
0: He never lost. He just ran out of time. But he never actually <laughs> lost, right? I mean when he first said that to me, I was like, Huh?
1: What? what is this guy talking about? But that's that's how he thought. That's how he approached the game. And once I understood it, you know, he never gave up. You know, he's down fifteen, down twenty. He never gave up. He, he, he maintained that mentality, the score is always 0-0. Zero, zero. And when he was up 20, he was trying to destroy you. You know, everyone else was like, well, you know, it could be a let-up. That, that wasn't how he thought. He wasn't wired that way. And, um, you know, it was uh, it was really fun to see.
0: Yeah, so when, then what kind of an impact did he have, B.J., for instance, on his teammates? As an example, like as you point out, I've done this long enough that I did used to cover you guys. I mean, from afar, from California, but I mm-hmm. would interview guys on the team. And I can remember having repeated conversations with Steve Kerr at that time. And this was, as you know, BJ, the world was wired. It was set up differently. There was no internet. There was no social. So when we had a chance to talk to you guys, if any of you let us in, it was like, it was gold. It was amazing. And Steve Kerr would say things like this, that he said this week to me back then. He said this week, quote, there was a pressure that came with it when you were at Michael Jordan Jordan's teammate that I never felt from anybody. It was a great test. You had to step up and compete and perform every day. End quote. He would say that to me back in the day, and he would always say it really respectfully, but he'd say, listen, man, it is not easy being that guy's teammate. So what was it like for you? Did you feel that pressure when you played with Mike, and what was it like day-to-day to to live with and work with Mike?
1: Well, the the pressure came, you know, because – it was the one thing that was absolutely necessary, right? You know, you can talk about being good. You can say all the right things, but in the end, the only thing that matters is if you perform performance was the X factor with playing with Michael Jordan. That was, that was it, right? Because rest assured he was going to find a way to win that game. Now, a lot of people, you know, it's easy to say, hey, I didn't play well. Well, Michael didn't play well every single night, but he always found a way to win the game. You know, the team could not play well, but he was going to find a way. He found a way to compete at the highest level no matter what. Now, that's unusual because you're, you know, look, is it is it possible to win every game? Absolutely not. But playing with Michael Jordan, it was possible to want to win every game and have an opportunity to win every game. Now, how many people can actually say that in an 82-game season? Playing with Michael Jordan, we had an opportunity to win all 82 games. And when he was in practice, he did that. He was going to win every drill. He was going to compete for every loose ball. Anything that had to do with basketball, he was going to compete at the highest level. But even more so, when you were playing ping pong or you were playing pool or you were playing cards or whatever we were doing, whose luggage was going to come out first, he was going to be the same. So when you saw someone, this is who he was, right? He was that whether the lights were on or the lights were off. It was just a very unusual thing to see because it wasn't an act. He was going to compete. If he was here right now, somehow we would get into some competition because he has to compete. And, you know, look, you know, you, how many times you see people say, hey, I, you know, when I play in between the lines, I'm a different person. No, he was that same person all the time, 24 hours a day.
0: So that being said, and you guys are different cats. I mean, if you're a first round pick the way you were, you're a different guy. I think you guys are wired differently. But even on that level, is that shit not exhausting? If it's (laughs) 24-7, if this guy wakes up competing at who makes the bed the best or whose luggage is coming off first, is that shit not exhausting at some point?
1: Well, you, you know, I can tell you what. I've been on both sides of the coin. When you're winning, life is great, you know? And when you're losing, losing in the NBA, I can't think of anything that you can experience as a professional basketball player when you're going into a game and you know, you're doing your best, but you know, truth is, you know, you're not going to win or have an opportunity to win. Was it exhausting? Yes, it was exhausting because you know what, you had to bring that level of focus and attention every single day because he was going to find it. Like, look, we all are tired. You know, you're playing four games in five nights. Four games and five nights, you know what? You have every excuse to lose, you know, to lose that game, right? You have every excuse. You're traveling, you get in late, so forth and so on. But let me assure you this, number 23 was going to find a way not only to compete but win that game. And he was going to find a way. So you had to make a decision with him. Am I in or am I out? And if you weren't comfortable being all the way in, that could be a very uncomfortable thing for you. But for us who was comfortable saying, you know what, this is what I could bring that night. Uh, if anything, I brought whatever I had that night. And, and 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 he saw that. He knew. He knew he was something different. He knew that. But he also expected from you to bring what you could bring to the game. And as long as you did that, there was no problems with him because um, the man was going to perform. I mean, that was – he was undeniable that way, and, um, you know, that's, that's that's what we saw. And I think all of us saw something special, and we knew it was special. And I think we probably, or at least I did, I marveled at the fact that he could repeat this over and over and over again because once you're playing in the playoffs, you're playing over 100 games, But somehow he was able
0: to do it. So, BJ, for instance, if, and that's to me, as gifted as Mike was, explosive, as long, you know, as smart as he was, I've always been most amazed by that that grind, that drive, that he could do this over and over and over again and never lost that grit, that heart, that will. But... If you got on the wrong side of him because you didn't meet his standard or you didn't show up the way you need to show up, I don't mean you; I mean anybody on that team. What was mm-hmm. it like to get on the wrong side of Mike? Are we talking about like verbal abuse? Are we talking about a guy getting the hands? Like, what was it like to incur Mike's wrath?
1: Well, he's going to apply the pressure, right? Um, what gave him that confidence? And certainly, we all can identify with it. Whatever you do, right? Whatever you do in life, right? Broadcasting doctor, whatever you do, whatever profession you choose, right? When you put the the work into being the best that you can be, there's an inner confidence that comes with that. You couldn't fake it with him because not only was he better than you physically, you know, he's probably stronger than you mentally. Um he was going to work. He's gonna work on his craft, right? No matter how hard I worked as a player, there was no nothing that I could do to beat him in a one-on-one type of setting because he just had the physical gifts and he had a physical advantage over every player in the NBA, right? He was stronger, faster, more athletic than every player in the NBA. But when you match that with the work ethic and the type of work ethic that he had, now he can not only talk about what he was doing, he was backing it up. And that was there, that was on display every day, right? This wasn't like, I heard he works out. No, you knew he was working out and he was bringing it, you know, so you felt that pressure and you knew that he was coming for it for you. He was coming. He would sniff that out and you know, you know, people who are prepared and you know, people who are not prepared, you know, he, if you didn't, if you missed a shot, that's okay, you know. He missed shots. You know, he'll tell you. You know, I I probably I missed more shots to win a game than I made, but I shot him, and he was prepared for it, and he prepared for those moments. So he knew that he would sniff it. He would sniff that out. And if he if he saw a weakness or he saw that you weren't who you said you were, he was he was coming after you, and um and that was, you know, look that's the NBA is is. is you know, that, that was a league, it still is a league where it's played by the greatest players. And if they find any weakness, they're going to exploit it. And Michael didn't wait to the playoffs to do that. He was going to exploit If he found a weakness in the first quarter, he was going right at it. <laughs> he was just going to repeat that over and over again until you gave up. And that's what he really wanted. He wanted you to give up.
0: He was a killer. The the best ones are, you know. I think, for instance, Beechackin, and I've only interviewed Mike once, and the amazing thing was it was during Space Jam. And I had a cameo in that movie, so I thought that was my way in. And I started to work an angle with George Raveling because Raveling was with Nike, and he said he could do it. And Mike, and I went to UC Santa Barbara, and Mike was up there Mm -hmm. to camp in Santa Barbara. Like, I was working every angle I could for months and months and months and months. And I finally got Mike on the radio program when there were not a lot of radio programs like mine. It was that hard, and that was the only conversation I ever had with the guy. So because you know that he never does this, it's awe-inspiring to see Mike in that chair, in his house, with that cigar, and whatever he's got in that glass. And by the way, that's a man's pour. Hey, PJ, what does he have in that glass, by the way?
1: I have no idea, but uh, it, it was pretty funny, though, because uh, a
0: lot of people were, were wondering and thinking the same thing. Right. So, okay, that said, that said, like... That that version that we see of Mike, those interviews, how close? And it, again, it's on camera, and he knows that he's very self aware. But how close are those interviews to the real MJ, the MJ that you know?
1: Well, you know, um, it, it really is. I, I I really think. Well, and I didn't think. I should take that back. I know he's going to go there, um, because you don't commit to a ten part series, and. You can't fluff it, right? Um, I think he's going to really reveal. You're going to see the raw emotions. I think you're going to see who this man was. Um, I would venture to say, I haven't seen it, um, but it, it has to be, right? If Just knowing what we went through with the Detroit Pistons, knowing what he's gone through, you know, the, the man is, he's a warrior. That's what he is. I mean, he is a true warrior in every sense of the word. I mean, he has no concept of the word to give up. Right? The light switch is on or the light switch is off. For him, it's on. It's on to this moment. So, um, I think he's going to. I think he's going to go there. I, I think it, probably in some regards for him, it's something that he feels a need for whatever that need may be to reveal that part of himself that no one has known. I mean he is basically held on to this. And um, you know, he's just you know, I, I think he's at a stage of his life where he's probably saying, you know what? Yeah, this is who Mike you thought you knew Michael Jordan, but this is who he really is. And if someone's gonna really get that story, I should be the one to tell it. And I agree because he should be, because no one has done it before him like this. No one has done it since him. And, you know, when you talk about this business that we're in, right. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's the bottom line, which is winning games. And then there's a top line, which is putting people in the seats, the entertainment aspect of the business. And when you combine those two, he's the best, he's the greatest to ever do it. Right. He affected the game like no other, right. Um, he 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 was the best of his era, and you can put him in any era, and he's going to be one of the top players to ever play, right, in any era, right, one or two, whomever you want to argue uh, who's the greatest player. But when you combine the entertainment value of this business, right, I don't know if it's all sports. I don't know if it's all entertainment. It's some type of hybrid of some sort. Michael Jordan is the greatest player to ever play. And um, he's just probably the greatest athlete, when, as, I'm, as I'm thinking about it, to ever do it because he had such an impact on the value of what sports is really all about, which is it's a business. And I think that example, I think what it showed you in the first episodes was when he got hurt, he had a clear vision and understanding of the business when he hurt his foot. And I think that, that's what seasoned him, that's what hardened him to understand that oh, this is a business. Yeah, it's it, every player has a dream to play in the NBA. And, yeah, and once you get here and when you learn that lesson, you have to make a decision. And I think he made that decision, and I think that's what gave him this focus, gave him this drive, this determination. And um, I think it's going to go there. I think you're going to really see the real Michael Jordan as this unfolds.
0: BG, I mean, I, I could do this for hours. I want to be careful about the the spots that I pick before I let you go. I'm, I'm so enjoying this conversation. But you mentioned the Pistons, and we haven't seen any of that. But you said what we went through with the Pistons. Like, what did you go through? What was it like to deal with the likes of Mohorn and Beer and Rodman and Isaiah and having to keep going to war with these guys before Chicago finally got through, finally got over? What was it like to go to war with them?
1: Well, Well, well first of all... You know, you you have to tip your hat to them. They were a very, very, very good basketball team, right? Hell yeah, they had Hall of Fame players. Um, they had a Hall of Fame coach, and more so than physically, right? They were very, very good physically. Mentally, they were they were they they were sensational, right? They were a mentally tough group, right? If you ever want to say mentally. You know, who could you, you know, want to be if you had to, say, pick one team? This team was mentally tough, right? So when you played the Pistons, yes, Michael was clearly the most gifted physical player on the court. But mentally, it was mental warfare, right? And it wasn't until we were able to match them mentally with the mental toughness that was necessary, we weren't going to beat this team. And that was probably one of the most difficult lessons to learn because it takes, you have to, just because you can score a lot of points, just because you can, you know, maybe you're faster and stronger than someone else. Back then, no one really cared, right? And one of the things that we all knew was, yeah, we knew we had the best player, but they had the best team, and they always felt that they were going to win the game. So it wasn't until we developed that attitude and we, Figured out who we were going to be, and we had the mental capacity to meet that challenge. Right? We had to figure out how to get our second best player, Scottie Pippen, an opportunity to be, and and put his impact on the game, because we couldn't we couldn't offset the way they were going to play in the last four minutes of a game because they they had a team that was built for the playoffs. Right? They had Dennis Rodman coming off the bench. They had John Sally. They had Isaiah, Joe Dumas, Benny Johnson. They had. A, a, they had a talent that was built to just grind the game out, and we had to figure out and really ask ourselves, who, you know, who are who are we, and who are we going, who are we going to be, and what are we going to do when we get to our moment of truth. So the Pistons for us represented our moment of truth, and once we figured out who we were going to be mentally, the rest was history because we we knew we had the same level of talent, if not better. We felt we had better. Talent than them uh, because of our two players, just the way they played. But mentally, as a group, they were a tough group, and we we began to believe in ourselves. We matched their energy, and once we figured that out, we never looked back. And uh, I can tell you, it was it was great games because the, the games were so sophisticated. Right when I look at those games, even today, the sophistication of those games were so superior than anything I've seen before, or after. And I just loved playing with Chuck Daly and all those people, and Bill Jackson, it was a great time.
0: Chuck Daly was amazing. He was such a, an amazing coach and presence. You know, he got started late, but the players loved him. He, he was an amazing coach. P.J., how about a quick thought about Scotty in the sense that Scotty was such a unique player, an almost impossible matchup. And I mean, you can speak to this because you've been on every side of this. You played with him, you worked as a special assistant for Jerry Krause, you're a player agent right now. So you've seen every single side and every aspect of the business. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. but knowing what we know now, Scotty did sign that contract. Jerry Reinsdorf said in the first couple of episodes, I advised him not to, but knowing what they knew, and at times guys do outperform their contracts, and to say that he outperformed it's the greatest understatement ever, should the team have ripped that deal up and taken care of him? Well, you know, um, I, you know I've been on every side, right?
1: And, like, I, I was a player, and every player, I'm always rooting from the player perspective, look, make as much as you can make and do what you can do. And, um, and on the other side, I've worked in the front office and what, well, that's your job, right? Your job is to try to sign, you know, players and get, create value, right? When we're possibly, you know, that you're hoping that that player outperforms that contract, right? That's a great sign. Um, so I get that as an agent, you're constantly trying to predict the future and what that looks like so that, you know, hopefully as the player moves up, the salary moves up. So I've, I've seen all of the sides. I will say this, you know, Scotty and back then, you know, when we're, when we're all coming through in the eighties and the nineties, you know, television wasn't television like it is today. And You know, I remember as a kid growing up in in the city of Detroit when the NBA Finals was on tape delay. (laughs) Totally, in 1979, 11:30 at night, was 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 playing, and it was on tape delay. So suddenly, now we're perhaps saying we're watching the greatest player in the early '90s to ever play the game. Right after he wins one, or after he won a couple championships, so. No one, myself or anyone, I think can could anticipate the growth and expansion of the game. That's from the business side of it. What the Bulls and what their vision was, hey, I have no idea. I wasn't present to those conversations. I was still a player at the time. And knowing what I knew after working in the front office, you know, I get how hard and how difficult it is to build a team. I get how hard it is to commit to a team And the most important thing is, like, when you are committing to a team and building a team, you want to make sure that all of those players are kind of in the same time frame, right? You got one player – you don't want one player to be on a five-year deal and another player on a one-year deal because if that player gets hurt or that player doesn't come back, now that player who's signed, he signed out. How are you going to build around those players? And you have to take in the age. So it is much more complicated than I think this – you know, the first two hours was able to capture – but certainly, Scottie Pippen was a phenomenal player. And when it was all said and done, I think Scottie, whether it was then or now, I think in the end, he got what he deserved because I know he was paid very well. And um, I, 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 you know, I know he was compensated very well throughout his career as a player in the NBA, as he should have been. And um, that's the one thing that, you know what, that's the business part of it. I get it. We, we've all seen it. And uh, we've all been through it as players, we, and I've went through it as an executive, and I go through it every day here as an agent. So uh, I get it. It's a very sensitive topic. But in the end, I'm for Scottie Pippen, I'm glad that it all worked out for him.
0: All right, so one thought about the front office. Like, in terms of the first two hours, Jerry Cross, who, I mean, he did an amazing job in building that team and building that roster, but he's obviously not coming off well at all in the dock. not yet, and maybe not at all. He's taking a lot of heat. You were a special assistant to him. And again, BJ, you've been on all sides of this. The criticism that Krause is taking right now, is it fair or unfair in your opinion?
1: Well, you, you know, look, when you live your life in the public, you're going you're gonna to win some, you're going to lose some. But in the end, you have to maintain your truth and be true to who you are. You know, no one can deny this, right? With the exception of Michael Jordan, Um. There in the Chicago Bull and the Chicago Bulls organization, Jerry Krause was responsible for everyone else there. And all of this happened on his clock, right? He drafted Scotty Pippen and Horace Grant. He made the trade for Charles Oakley, uh, for Bill Cartwright. He drafted BJ Armstrong. He hired Phil Jackson and every, he had a vision of what he thought and with the organization of how they should build a team around a superior talent like Michael Jordan. And not only did he do it once, he did it twice. So in the end, like I said to you earlier, the bottom line is about performance. This business is about performance, and that's what it is. It's a business, right? It doesn't require my opinion about what it is. No one can deny that. It is what it is. Um, in the end, I think everyone performed to their highest level, to their highest standard, right? They won six championships in an eight-year period. And those two years were only because Michael Jordan didn't play. <laughs> and I don't know if it could have been better. I don't know if it could have been worse. But what I do know is that all of those people there, one way or another, we all found a way. So we all stayed true to who we were. We found a way regardless of what was going on around us because I know that group, once the game started, it really didn't matter. And uh, I'm just happy to be a part of it. To win once would have been enough, let alone three, and those guys won six. So um, I think we're all okay, and, uh, but it's fun to talk about and reminisce about these times.
0: All right, so leave me with this thought then. I appreciate the time so much, BJ. Like, you know all the stories. You already, you've already heard all the stories. You know the stories. Is there anything in particular you're eager to see as the coming episodes lay out? And do you have any concerns as the show continues to roll?
1: Um, well, the, the, the one thing I have a concern, and it's just because I, I, I you know, it's one thing to have a teammate or you meet someone or, you know, you, you know someone from afar. Um, the one thing that I do have concern because these guys are my friends, right, in particular, Michael. Um, I, I'm just a little nervous because, you know, there's a – you never want to lose yourself in this this entertainment business. and um, And what I mean by that is, like, you know, the Air Jordan character was the character that you saw, you saw in the commercials, we all came to love. You know, he's this superhuman figure. But, um, you know, I had a chance and I I know, I know Michael, right? I know him. And um, so I'm a little nervous for that because I know how private it is and I know how important it is when your life is in the public to draw the line, right? There's the public side and then there's your private side. And, you know, this is a part that I've never seen him do before. So I don't know the reaction, and I just want him to – I just always want him to be happy, but more importantly, I always wanted to respect his privacy. So um, I think this is very revealing, but maybe in some way it's really good for him to talk about it, right? Um, I'm sure, you know, there's – you know, I can't imagine, you know, what it's like, you know, being – arguably one of or the most popular person on the planet, right? I mean, he's, he, there's no place he can't go and no one's not going to know him. So maybe, you know, this is some way to, for him to, you know, reveal something about himself that he needed to do. But uh, if there's anything, I'm, I was just a little nervous about that because you're seeing your friends, right? You know, Scotty Pippen is my friend. Um, and I, and all these guys that I played with and I suited up with, you know, we're all bonded for life uh, because of the experience we all shared as young men. And, um So other than that, for the people, yeah, I'm a little nervous about um, just because I think it's just, you know, you always want to be a good friend, but, you know, the players and all those things, you you know, life will carry on.
0: It's a family. It's a bond. I mean, I understand exactly what you're saying. I did not even mean to carry on the conversation as long as I did, but it was so good <laughs> and so strong, and you and I had not got a chance to get caught up in a minute or two, BG, I so appreciate your thoughts on that, and it was so great to get caught up. I appreciate you. I appreciate the time, and definitely you and yours stay safe, and hopefully we can get to some basketball soon.
1: It's a pleasure. It's best. You guys stay safe out there. I enjoy the work, enjoy the show, and anytime uh, I'm always here, my friend, and you guys be well.
0: listen now more than ever we know that businesses are grappling with incredibly challenging times a lot of things in life and business are changing right now and we are all adapting to our new priorities while it does take time to adjust LinkedIn believes that we can create opportunity when our community comes together, whether you're looking to hire now for a critical role or you're thinking about needs that you may have in the future, LinkedIn Jobs is here to help. LinkedIn is an active community with over 675 million members worldwide. LinkedIn screens candidates for the hard and soft skills that you're looking for and puts your job in front of candidates looking for job opportunities just like yours. And with LinkedIn, you can hire the right person quickly when you need to. So... When it's time to hire and find that right person, LinkedIn is here to help. If you need to hire for healthcare or essential services, you can also post your jobs for free. Just visit linkedin.com/rome, again linkedin.com/rome and post a job right now. Terms and conditions do apply. Thanks to BJ for the time and the amazing conversation. Appreciate that so very much. And to you, as always, thank you for listening. Before you duck out, make sure you subscribe if you've not done so already. Remember, every single Wednesday, there is a fresh new podcast of totally original content that we push out on a weekly basis. And if you're looking for more great conversations, do not hesitate to take a listen to any of the previous episodes. They all hold up. I'll be back in seven days with another one. But until then... Make sure, stay safe, stay healthy, stay up, and here are your voicemails. First new message. Jeremy, this is Alan in Virginia. Uh, that hour-long segment he did on Garrett Ritt was an hour too short.
1: It's hilarious. And, uh, please don't lose him, man. He might, all the brand names you brought up, he might get a sponsorship and leave the show, man. You don't want that to happen. He's the MVP right now. Out!
0: Message saved. Next message.
1: Hi, Jim. Bella Bean, Calgary. You know it's a pandemic when the liquor store just sold out a Skinny Girl cocktail. Mmm!
0: Message saved. Next message.
1: So there's a lot of can't-miss prospects out there at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. For example, we have Nurse Blair. She's out there running all day between patients from room to room. So I bought my stopwatch one day and timed her. She's definitely running her 40 fast in Tom Brady and Philip Rivers. You want commoner pressure? Nurse Katie is out here administering chemo medicine to a uh, kicking, crying, and screaming two year old boy. If that's not commoner pressure, I don't know
0: what it is. Shout out to Radiant Children's Hospital San Diego. Message saved. Next message. Hey, there,
1: Jimmy. Uh, Monica's Peace Blatter here. Uh, just got a little number for you by old Steve Winwood. Uh. Quarantine. 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 Yeah, we're already, uh, using gum as a hearing aid.
0: Message deleted. Next message.
1: Hi, Jim. This is Thurston from Michigan. Apparently one of your callers has a problem with me walking my dog at all hours in the evening as I'm on my cell phone smoking my cigarettes can you please have Mr. Dunn mind his own business, and if he could, take my trash cans up the road, which is what all peasants do for me. Thank you, Jim.
0: Message deleted. Next message.
1: Jim, Tony Montana. I just listened to your show today, Jim, and I heard J.R. Smith say he doesn't like the fucking Hennessy. Well, Jim, let me tell you, I don't like the goddamn cocaine. I don't need the cocaine. I don't want the cocaine. I sell it for fucking money, and it clears my pimples when I stick my face in it. It's better than peroxide or any other pimple remover, Jim.
0: Tony Montoya, out. Message deleted. You have no more messages.